Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020 has brought with it enormous costs. These include, first and foremost, an enormous cost in the terms of human life, with more than 178,000 deaths from the coronavirus in the United States alone, and at least 814,000 deaths worldwide as of late August 2020. But also, with the pandemic have come significant economic costs, fiscal costs, and personal costs to our happiness and quality of life. Why is living under quarantine so hard for people? In large part, it's because, prior to the pandemic, we've been able to live under a system of mostly free markets. And when we're robbed of our ability to work in a lockdown, we're also robbed of part of what comprises our innate human dignity, as this pandemic takes a toll not only in the loss of human life, but in the loss of community. What can we learn from the economic costs of the COVID-19 pandemic? How can economics and public choice theory help us better understand the actions of political leaders during this time? And how can entrepreneurship, allowed for under free markets, innovate solutions to these problems? On today's episode, Acton's Managing Director of Programs, Stephen Barrows, speaks with Dr. David Hebert, Chair of the Economics Department and Associate Professor of Economics at Aquinas College about the economics of the quarantines and lockdowns in the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash acton line. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Well, greetings, everyone. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. David Hebert, who is Associate Professor of Economics at Aquinas College. Uh, Dr. Hebert has uh, earned his PhD from George Mason University and his undergraduate degree in economics from Hillsdale College. Uh, He has taught previously at Troy University in Ferris State and has published in numerous uh, professional economics journals to include the Journal of Public Choice and Public Finance, as well as the Journal of, of Private Enterprise. And today we're going to talk about an interesting topic, one that, uh, that is quite uh, serious because of its implications for our society. But also, um, you know, there's many debates that go back and forth about what's currently happening with COVID-19 and the pandemic. And so, of course, uh, as, as an economist, Dave has quite a number of things uh, to look at and examine from that perspective, though, of course, we, neither one of us, I being an economist too, really aren't competent to speak on the epi- epidemiological dimension of this. Nevertheless, I think economics has quite a bit uh, to inform us about both the disease, its implications for society, um, as well as what has been transpiring since this uh, this all began earlier in, in, at the beginning of the year. So welcome, and so glad to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Steve. So I just want to get uh, your, your perspective. You know, when I think about what's transpired over the past several months, one of the things that really jumped out, of course, was the phenomenal jump in the unemployment rate. So what, what's happening here? And, and then what is your perspective, not only with that jump, but at least from my standpoint, the sudden return, it seems like it's actually improving quicker than I had initially thought when it, we first saw the unemployment rate skyrocket. 
Yeah. So what was really interesting is toward the beginning of this pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of states shut down their economies for the most part. And and by that, we really mean forced a lot of stores to close. It's obvious that the economy didn't shut down, but a lot of things became more difficult to do. You know, think about going to the grocery store. Uh, it used to be that if you were buying fertilizer, you had to do that online, even though uh, locally the Meyer uh, in our town sells it, you know, right next to uh, the groceries. But you couldn't go down that aisle. You had to buy that stuff online instead. So it made a lot of transactions a lot more difficult. And in doing so, a lot of people were essentially told to stay home, you know, for their safety, um, which, you know, we can debate, but like you said, neither of us are epidemiologists, so uh, I'm going to shy away from that topic. <laughs> but it, it's clear that a lot of people no longer were able to go to work. And when they do that, you know, they're going to file for unemployment as, as well they should. It's a program that exists for very good reasons. Um, but what we saw, which I, I thought was really interesting, is right when we saw kind of the, the two highest increases in, in unemployment claims on a weekly basis, you know, people were predicting 30, maybe even 40 percent unemployment by June or July. And I don't think it ever eclipsed even 15 percent. Right. You know, it, it came back down relatively quickly. Now, whether that's because, you know, we got the virus under control, which I think is clear we didn't, um, given that we're still shut down for the most part. But whether that's due to reopening from the state levels, whether that's due to people moving into things like uh, working at shipped or transferring, you know, to a different state, uh, who knows? That's that's something that's going to take probably 10 years to figure out exactly what happened. I do think it's an incredible testament to the resiliency of markets and people uh, that, that we could quickly redeploy so many people into new jobs that, frankly, you know, six months ago, I'd never even heard of shipped. Mm. And now every time I go to the grocery store, I see 25 people wearing a shipped T-shirt and carrying multiple bags and pushing multiple carts so they can take groceries to people who are unable to go you know, to the store themselves. You know, I, I want to jump into a little bit more of what you described there with uh, resiliency, both of the marketplace as well as individual ingenuity in responding to situations like they've just experienced. And, th and that is, when you think about restaurants, mm -hmm. it was pretty amazing to me. On the one hand, restaurants have been devastated by this. And yet my own behavior is I quickly responded to the opportunities for restaurants to have carryout. And yeah. so you'd swing by and you'd pick up your order. And, and, and I, I was, it, it actually struck me how quickly those restaurants did adapt. So in, in light of that, um, have you heard or observed anything about the difficulties then that the restaurants have experienced in drawing their workers back who perhaps were uh, receiving unemployment benefits? Yeah. So I've heard, you know, anecdotal stories that the the $600 a week was more money than, than the restaurant workers were earning, you know, at, at their job. And so some were reluctant to come back. You know, I, I'm sure there's a few people that that description is accurate. I don't think it's nearly as as common as everyone seems to be thinking. Sure. Or at least half the population seems to think. Right. But, you know, I think it, it speaks kind of volumes to not just the resiliency of markets and restaurants, but the resili the resiliency of people. Yes. You know, we, we value work, not just for the sake of getting a paycheck, because clearly for large swaths of the population, 
staying home and collecting unemployment would have been more financially beneficial to them than going back to work. And yet they still went back to work instead. Absolutely. So they worked hours and they got less money. Right. That should be that's puzzling to economists, but it's not puzzling to people. Sure. Right. People understand that work is something that you do. It's a it's a God given opportunity to serve your fellow man and to provide value to other people. And Absolutely. so I think that's the real testament that, that we're learning here. And we can say, you know, people aren't responding to the, the crisis as, as well as they should. And, and that's probably accurate, at least based on my limited information on how this stuff works. But I think it's really telling how much value there is that people assign to their job about just being able to contribute to society. Absolutely. And, and they're willing to do it, you know, at a cost to themselves. Sure. You know, I, I suppose in one sense, we know that work is dignifying, that individuals gain some sort of satisfaction knowing that they're contributing to society and to their fellow man. I wonder also if there's that dimension. I know that I started to get stir crazy. Now, I was fortunate to be one of those individuals that had the capacity and the, and the type of job that permitted me to work remotely uh, and recognizing that many people unfortunately don't have those scenarios if – like you say, individuals then have the choice between continuing to receive those unemployment benefits or going back to a job that might end up paying a little bit less in terms of compensation. Uh, it strikes me that, wow, they get that social outlet then once again with their fellow uh, human beings. And Yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's the real cost of, of this quarantine period. It's, it's, yes, it's, it's clearly a cost of human life. Like I don't want to downplay that. And that's obviously the main cost. But the real – to me at least, the cost that, that I see every day you know, as a, as a college professor, as a person in the community is, is the lack of, of being able to be with people. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's you know, it's one thing to be stuck at home. You know, we've we've seen the videos of you know the poor, you know, people who have to choose whether they swim in their hot tub or in their swimming pool or if they play basketball. You know, and God forbid that you have to make that choice. But I think that speaks volumes to the idea that man is a social animal. You know, we desire and crave being around other people. You can have all the trinkets in the world in your house and still be miserable if you have no one to share them with. I think that's the the real big loss that I think is is going uncounted from from this lockdown. Absolutely. So I want to think through a little bit the implications of what you said about being a social animal. You know, as an economist, uh, we oftentimes think in terms of the division of labor. And so when we think about what a pandemic does, not only does it prevent individuals from working, but then it also somehow separates the division of labor or prevents it from realizing its full effect. Would you uh, comment further on that concept? And is, am I right here? Or? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, so the division of labor is, is a wonderful hallmark of, of any society. And the more divided the labor can be, the more we can find you know, little niches that we can fill to serve people better. So I like to give an example of, of my father. Uh, he works at a factory that makes screws. And I don't just mean like the screws you get at Ace Hardware or Home Depot. I mean the high-precision screws that go into watches, right? And let's just like think about that for a minute. Like there exists a company that all they do is make screws for watches. That's it, right? They don't make other screws, Yeah. And to me, that's an amazing accomplishment of the division of labor. Like think about how specialized that is. But when you have something like a global pandemic that that – 
forces us to be in our homes, we can no longer enjoy that type of division of labor. So if you are, you know, in a household with two working parents and and children, you know, suddenly not only do you have work that you need to still somehow find a way to do, but you've also got to now run a restaurant for your children. You've got to run a, a school, right, because you have to supervise them while they're doing their remote learning. You've got to be the IT department for the school because, you know, your nine-year-old's probably not – well, actually nine, they probably could figure out the computer problems, but your six-year-old probably can't, right? You've got to be – if you have a, a small child like like I do, my son turns uh, – he turns one actually this week. Uh, you know, suddenly you're now daycare as well. And so it suddenly becomes – you know, and yes, you you love providing for your family, you love serving them, right? But you also probably contracted some of that out through, for example, schools, right? They took care of a lot of those things and allowed you to provide value to other people in your community and serve them. Absolutely. Right? And and actually it's a really cool thing. So um Bambavrik talks about roundaboutness, mm, right? Yes. Where, where what you have, what he's talking about is, you know, there's there's multiple paths for me to put food on the table for my family, right? One is to go out and grow food in my backyard. Okay, now the office plants that I have that have all died will be a testament to the fact that my family would starve if I chose to try to put food on my table that way. Instead, what I can do is I can go out and I can teach economics. Right, so I go into a classroom, I teach people that demand slopes down, supply slopes up, and X marks the spot. I get a paycheck for doing so, and also personal satisfaction, but I also get a paycheck. And then I can take that paycheck and go to the grocery store and purchase food. Right? And that way, I have much more food than I could grow myself. I have much better food than I could grow myself. And I have it in more abundance and in more variety than I could ever achieve by myself. So at the same time, by serving people in, in the community, by serving my students, I am also serving my family by putting food on the table. I'm just not the one that's making the food. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, in fact, when I reflect on our own lives, I'm certainly not a green thumb. Just about anything I plant is going to is going to wither at some point. And and then, gosh, you you mentioned the the education of children. We also have children, and and I can tell you that I've gained a much deeper appreciation for their teachers. Uh, oh, yeah. as, as 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 good and effective as the school was in continuing the education remotely. I just realized that perhaps the patience and skill at, at helping them to understand concepts and so forth was not nearly as much uh, effective as, as, say, their teachers. So I think you're right. The division of labor, this sure does help illustrate uh, how much we depend upon it and, and probably take it for granted. I think we do. I mean, it's, it's one of the most misunderstood or, or least understood concepts in all of economics is this division of labor. It's truly a marvel. So su- supposing that this continues uh, for longer than anybody wants, which of course we hope doesn't happen. But if if people then begin to get worried about being in densely dense you know densely populated areas, say you know migration out migration from cities, mm-hmm. uh, what does that spell for the the well being of cities? If people begin to get nervous that yeah pandemics are raising the cost to here to me being in a densely populated environment, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I've been kind of thinking about that. You know, off and on, as I see reports from you know Detroit and, and other cities around here that are still experiencing high rates of COVID, you know, anytime you get people together and there is an infectious disease that's going through the population, the disease is going to spread. And so, 
the challenge with I think with COVID nineteen is is twofold. One is that the symptoms could take up to two weeks to show. So you know you could be infected and have no symptoms. You know two weeks. Uh, after you get infected. You could also, and this is the second challenge, you could also never show symptoms and still be a vector for spreading this this disease. Mm. So you could very easily be in a large city, get infected, not know it, and leave to other communities. And now all of a sudden you are a vector for bringing that disease to other places. Mm. You know, this is the, this is the challenge. This is sort of the, the, the public discourse or the, the, public aspect of this is is how do you simultaneously allow people sort of the freedom to interact with with other people you know i've got family in other states right you know should i go visit them i I don't know right um you know so how do you simultaneously allow people to do those things but also maybe not allow them to do those things so that we don't spread this disease even more right you know that's the big the big public policy debate. You know, it's interesting. As you were speaking there, uh, you know, as, as an economist, I immediately think, oh, negative externality. Right. Negative externality. But there was something else that you said that made me realize that it's something even deeper than that. And uh, maybe you could elaborate on this a little bit further. So we have negative externalities, and which means that the costs of some transactions spill over onto the rest of society mm-hmm. and it's not captured in the transaction itself. But in addition to that... So somebody playing their loud, annoying music, and, right? And, and, and you know, yeah, pollution, pollution, loud music. In this case, we have a negative externality that may not even be evident at the time the transactions are occurring. In other words, right. it, it's it's a, there's a huge information asymmetry. Any thoughts on that of the how that yeah. might amplify the situation? I mean, that's the big thing, right? So with with every other classic negative externality, you know, maybe we don't know what factory is doing the polluting, Mm. but we can launch an investigation and we can figure it out pretty quick. Sure. Right. Probably in less than two weeks. Right. (laughs) But with with an infectious disease that may or may not show symptoms, you know, we might not ever know who the person was. Right. So the standard solution to uh, a negative externality, at least the way we do it in, in in the U.S. system, is you tax it, right? Mm-hmm. There's a polluter, right? And you slap sure. a tax on them. And that tax, you know, aligns what are called the private social costs or the private marginal costs and the social marginal costs. And in doing so, you kind of, as we say, you internalize the externality. How do you tax people who have an infectious disease that doesn't show? Sure. Right? I mean, you can't do it. That solution, you know, it's definitely a negative externality. But at least in terms of the public policy world, there, to me, there's not really a solution. Mm. You know, we could say uh, the other solution that's often trumpeted is, is called the Coase theorem, mm. uh, which says that all negative externalities or all externalities, period, are really just a property rights issue. Mm. But how do you bargain when you don't know what position you're in? Exactly. Right? Like if I'm sick, you know, in theory, I could pay everybody around me that I, you know, want to go meet with and say, you know, here's a hundred bucks to let me hang out with you or something. You know, it'd probably be more than a hundred dollars, but whatever, <laughs> whatever the number is, I could give them some number of dollars right. and then I would have now like the property right to leave my home, right? If I don't know I have it, if I don't know what position I'm in to begin with, I can't do that bargain, mm. right? And we can't have other people do that bargain either. So it's a negative externality problem. But I don't know where the solution would lie. Sure. I suppose on the flip side, and of course we hope uh, that we have a safe vaccine that comes in quickly, we, 
I suppose if the state did mandate vaccination, mm-hmm. uh, that that would at least either mitigate the next ter- negative externality or create a sort of a herd immunity positive externality, right? Yeah. I mean, so the the technical term, because I, I just recently learned this, actually, the technical term is all about this thing called r not. And R naught is is the rate of transmission. And if R naught is greater than one, then that means every time period there's going to be more and more people getting infected. If R naught is less than one, then every time period fewer and fewer people are getting affected and it goes down to zero. So this whole goal of flattening the curve, as we've been hearing for the last few months, is all about trying to get that that R value as low as possible. Sure. Because we want to basically – not spread the disease quickly. Mm, Right. But this is where a lot of things come into play, and this is kind of the interesting trade-off that we all face. So we can, or we could have, we can't do it now, but at the beginning of this, we could have said, okay, we're not going to do anything. We're going to let everybody go go about their business. In fact, we're going to send everyone a stimulus check so that everybody goes out and gets sick as fast as possible. Okay? We could have done that. Lots of people would have died. Right. That's clearly bad. Okay. Alternatively, we could swing the other way and we could say, okay, for the next year, we're going to lock every single person in their bedroom, right? <laughs> no one can leave under, you know, police orders. Okay. And we could do that too. And that would get rid of, you know, the virus very quickly, right? We would just have, you know, everyone, it wouldn't spread, right? There'd be no spreading at all. The downside there, right, is yes, there would be fewer deaths from COVID because fewer people would get it. And if fewer people get it, fewer people are going to die from it. The downside is obviously that, you know, we would not get to enjoy the benefits of living in a modern society. Mm. I mean, we'd have to go back to hunting and gathering, but we'd be confined to our lawn. And I don't know how we'd handle, you know, skyscrapers or apartment (laughs) buildings, but presumably we could find some way to say, you know, this parcel of land over here is is yours to grow berries or something on. And, And that would be... That's one solution, right? So the challenge here is trying to figure out how fast or how by, by how much do we want to prevent the spread? Because right. the more we prevent the spread without a vaccine, right, the longer this, this COVID crisis is going to last, right? But if we want to minimize the time of the COVID crisis, well, then we got to get basically everybody infected, Right? right, which means lots of people die. Exactly, and so the idea behind flattening the curve is is to try to limit the spread of the virus to match the capacity of hospitals, mm. right? Because if we can get people who are sick and who need it into the hospital, we have a much better chance of saving their lives. Yes, okay? and that's the goal. We don't want anyone to die. Um, <clears throat> you know, we want people to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Right? That's the goal of any any society, and we can judge society by their ability to accomplish those three tasks. Sure. The challenge is if we try to get that so low, that, that spread so low, this disease is going to go on for five, ten years. Sure. That's clearly not going to be tenable, right? We're going to want to get back to normal as quick as possible. What sort of cost that entails – I don't know. That's a really big question. That that is a really, from an economist standpoint, trying to figure out what the optimum degree of lockdown you might say. Yeah. You know, what, what should that be? On the one hand, like you say, uh, you want to flatten the curve, uh, slow slow the spread. We accumulate more information on how to deal with the disease, treat it, combat it, you know, find vaccines if possible. 
But there is then the other side of the ledger. And you know, I, I, somebody once gave some feedback on a survey about uh, a conference we had where they had basically indicated they felt that Acton, the Acton Institute, valued markets more than they valued life. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a Christian economist, I, I don't think that's the case. I value life very much. And I, seeing it through the lens of an economist, I say, wait, there's another side of the ledger. In right. other words, if we lock down and do the extreme like you described, lock everybody in the bedroom. Right. I mean, wouldn't there be deaths from that as well? Oh, of course there would be. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't grow anything in dirt. Right? There's no <laughs> way I'm going to grow anything in my carpet. Right? It's just not going to happen. So, you know, yes, there would be deaths from severe lockdown as well. Uh, less pithily, because obviously locking people in their bedroom is not something we would ever advocate or pursue, <laughs> sure. right? But less pithily, you know, even these lockdowns that are causing people, you know, real psychic harm mm-hmm. from from the lost ability to do their dignified work. Sure. Right? I mean, think if, you know, I don't know if, if you've ever been unemployed or if you've lost your job, you know, for some reason. It's terrifying. You know, think about all the college students that graduated in in May who had their job offers rescinded, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do. I mean, they they were about to launch the rest of their lives, and now that's all upset. And, you know, by the time this ends, it could be May 2021. Well, now all of a sudden, you've got the May 2020 college graduates trying to get jobs, the May 2021 students trying to get jobs. I mean, it's going to be a big mess. Sure. And it's not going to be fun. And it's not the reason it won't be fun is not because of the lack of paycheck, right? That's not the purpose. The purpose of any economy is not to get people bigger paychecks. It's to help people live better, more meaningfully, healthier, and frankly, wealthier lives. And yes, wealthy does connote the paycheck aspect. But really what economists mean when we're talking about wealth is a wealth of opportunities and abilities and time to spend serving other people. Absolutely. Well, uh, we all hope that between the conversations of epidemiologists and economists, we can find that sweet spot. You know, some states, in fact, it's almost like a natural experiment. You know, some states are more aggressive, some less. And perhaps looking back after the studies are done, they'll 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 have a better sense of what the optimum restrictions would be on the economy in order to flatten that curve where we don't go too far on the other hand. Yeah. So so let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked a little bit more about some of the ideas uh, you know with respect to division of labor and some of the more microeconomic related concepts. But let's talk a little bit more about policy and the macro dimensions. So we know yeah. of course that uh, you know there's two dimensions that the federal government typically plays both fiscal and monetary policy and we've seen some actions that have occurred. So what are your observations in general about what uh, actions the government has taken to try to to engage this issue. Yeah, so let's let's think about what these tools ultimately are designed to do, right? So they're all within what we call Keynesian economics or Keynesian macroeconomics. And the purpose of fiscal policy and monetary policy is to shift aggregate demand in responses to changes in unemployment essentially or really changes in output, but unemployment and output are pretty closely linked. So When you enter into a recession, which technically we did uh, because output fell, GDP fell, uh, unemployment went up, you know, the solution is to either increase government spending, decrease taxes, right? Those would both be expansionary fiscal policy, or you can engage in some type of expansionary monetary policy. And the purpose of all of those, those tools is to shift that aggregate demand curve back to the right, Okay. But what that means is that you're getting people to go out and and basically spend money Mm. because as you spend money, people create things that you buy, right? And so 
in a world where people going outside their homes and going to work, where you're increasing that happening, and, and in a world where where that leads to people getting sick, you know, unflattening or steepening the curve, it seems to me that the very tools that the federal government has at its disposal to combat this virus, through economic policy at least, are the exact opposite of mm-hmm. what we would actually want. You know, we don't really want people to go out to grocery stores or to restaurants and sit, you know, in close proximity. Right. We don't want to return to, you know, people going to football games, mm. right? And and yes, I love college football and and my wife and I have season tickets to Michigan football. You know, we've had them for 3 years now. And yes, when when we got the email saying, "Hey, not this year." You know, yeah, we were sad. But at the same time, I know I'm probably not going to get sick from going to a football game. And that's probably a good thing. In fact, not even probably. It's a very good thing. Yeah, right. right. And so the tools that the federal government has are designed explicitly to get people to go out and spend money. Right. And we can say, you know, you know thank God for Amazon because, you know, hey, we can just shop online and not leave our homes. We don't have flying drones delivering our packages just yet. Right? Right. We tried it a few years ago, and apparently people didn't like it. Um, but you know that delivery driver or those people working in the warehouses packing all the boxes, they suffer the same problem that we do. What if one of them is sick, right? And they don't know it. Mm-hmm. They might be asymptomatic and be sick. What happens? Well, now the thousands of boxes that they've come in contact with are potentially infected, which means thousands of homes are now at risk of contracting COVID-19. Mm. So it's really, it's it's such a huge puzzle. And I, I, at some level, I'm really excited to see what macroeconomics does in response to this. Uh, obviously, I would prefer not to have to find out. Right. Uh, but, you know, in a world where I'm going to find out, like, I'm kind of excited to see what we learn from this. Like, how can we do that type of policy and not do that type of policy. Exactly. I mean, it's almost like working in opposing objectives, right? And right. at the same time, I, you know, when I think about the both the combination of fiscal and monetary policy, on the one hand, you certainly, as you acknowledged before, see the humanitarian motive. You know, individuals mm-hmm. who are out of work, they're, you know, really facing a hard situation. We have unemployment insurance uh, for a reason. And of course, in this case, oftentimes it was mandated by the government that people end up stopping work and, and, and they lose their jobs and get laid off. Right. Yet at the same time, we know that insofar as there's not actual productivity occurring, uh-huh. right, that it's effectively just fiat paychecks. Right. right? And, and logic would tell us that we can't sustain that forever. At some point, there's there's something has to give. Right. Something has to. Right. So what's going on is is people are are spending more money, right? Because we're getting those those paychecks, we're getting the stimulus. The spending is increasing. Productivity isn't really increasing a whole lot. Like it's it's increasing, but I would suspect and I haven't looked at the numbers, I'll fully confess, but I would suspect that the spending is outpacing the the productivity gains. Sure. So what should happen is we should expect to see some amount of inflation. We haven't seen it yet. Right. Now, it could be the case that a lot of the spending uh, that that normally happens currently isn't. So think about all the people in the U.S. who are renting. Mm. You know, they've had uh, their loan or their rent payments kind of suspended over this period if they lost their job. So now, you know, they've gone several months without paying rent. 
you know, most people say that 30% of your pay or your, your monthly income should go toward rent. I suspect that most people are paying closer to 50%, maybe mm. even more. So what's going to happen when all those rent pay, those previous or past rent payments come due? Well, that's going to be a big chunk of spending if people can afford it, which is another issue. Sure. But, you know, we're going to – I don't know when inflation might happen. I don't know if it's going to, but my gut kind of tells me that there probably will be some. Well, it's interesting. Of course, we know that in, if inflation does rear its ugly head, that it would be the central bank that would have to respond to dial it back, and that would entail some sort of unwinding of the monetary stimulus they've done. What, what do you think about the risks associated with unwinding such dramatic monetary stimulus? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the kind of rub of it, and and the hard part is we're doing all of this in the middle of of an election, and. You know, every four years, we're always told that this is the biggest election that we've ever faced and, you know, you need to go out and vote because this is, you know, this is good versus evil, right? Which is a whole separate issue that, you know, on another episode, maybe we could get into about that. But uh, it's it's difficult to imagine uh, Jerome Powell, who is the current chair of the Federal Reserve, um, who, by the way, is appointed by President Trump and then confirmed by the Senate. Like that's the process that by which Jerome Powell gets his job, right? As far as I'm aware, President Trump could dismiss him at any time. So here's kind of the puzzle. You know, the president is facing re-election. One of the big indicators about whether or not you get re-elected is how the economy is doing. The last thing that President Trump is going to want is for Jerome Powell to dial back you know, the, the printing presses at the Federal Reserve. That's not something that's going to go well for him. So, and here's the other thing is, is if President Trump ultimately controls whether Jerome Powell has a job, we got all kinds of problems, right? Even though the Federal Reserve is technically a private corporation, right? It's a private for-profit entity. It is not part of the government. Even though that's true, it kind of still is, right? Because the guy who picks whether the the boss, the chair of the Fed, has a job is the president of the United States. Right. So I don't know what's going to happen. It's a really big puzzle. Well, it's interesting. We, you know, there's obviously trade-offs. Uh, central banks across the globe that have been less independent uh, typically then show signs of uh, greater inflation rates because mm-hmm. of a political business cycle where people do want to, to prime the pump right before <laughs> before an election. Right. So hopefully we don't see those tendencies uh, rear their ugly head here in the United States because uh, central bank autonomy does have its uh, advantages to avoid the political uh, business cycle for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for nationalizing the central bank. <laughs> right? That would not – I don't think that would go well for anybody. No, I don't think so. So I want to uh, – address a little bit more the idea of the division of labor, but now take a look at it from a global standpoint. So we have, of course, individual deliber- uh, division of labor where corporations take advantage of different skill sets. And then we have a kind of a division of labor uh, internationally where countries specialize in things they do relatively well. Do you think that uh, this pandemic has uh, caused people to reflect a little bit more skeptically upon international trade and globalization? And what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it definitely has. I mean, it's it's one thing to note that you know I teach economics and my grocer sells groceries. You know, that's that's a real that's a real thing, but it's it's perhaps a little bit you know too micro for this type of consideration. It is true that different countries specialize in different things. You know, France is very good at making wine and cheese and bread. The U.S. is very good at 
at what we call capital intensive goods, you know, research and, and development, that kind of stuff. Uh, China historically has been very good at things that involve lots of labor. Um, you know, whether we're whether the Chinese firms are paying their workers enough, you know, that's a separate question that you know is a whole oh, new can of worms that maybe we shouldn't go into yet. But you know, there are differences across countries. What's been really interesting is is some of the studies, and, and the the specific word isn't coming to mind, but it's it's like degrowth. And so where economics has traditionally been concerned with just endless growth, right? Because if we pursue GDP growth, you know, that's, that's the tide that raises all boats. Um, but there's now an argument from several economists now uh, for, for degrowth, hmm. where, where rather than focusing on economic growth, we focus instead on like economic happiness. Interesting. And so the argument goes that GDP growth does not – correlate very well with happiness. And we know this. I mean, you know, you have probably met people who make 30000 a year and are the happiest people on earth. And you've probably met people who make millions of dollars a year and they're miserable, right? And we know that. You know, it's, it's true that, you know, money can't buy happiness, uh, as the saying goes, but it can buy a jet ski. And no <laughs> one doesn't smile when they're riding a jet ski, right? right? But at the same time, we know, you know, more money, more problems, right? And so, this degrowth uh, literature that's that's coming out is basically saying that we have plenty of things to make everyone happy. The question is the distribution, hmm. right? Which is probably true. You know, we it it makes intuitive sense that someone who has six yachts could probably do without one. It, it, there's a certain intuitive logic to that. The question is whether or not that that <coughs> distributional thing. Whether or not that's going to lead to change, like whether we, we change the distribution of the pie, whether that shrinks it, whether it grows it, right? Because it could. If everybody were happier, maybe we'd all be more productive anyway. Mm. Um, so it's, it's really causing a huge revolution in, in a lot of fundamental things in economics. Um, there's obviously no answers just yet, but it's a really exciting time to, to be thinking about these issues. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, you know, if you take a look at it from a microeconomic standpoint, there's there's a truism there as well, where there's a certain point where people do not prefer more income, but they would prefer to effectively buy leisure. Right. Right. Yep. And so, if you, if the end goal is always just you know greater GDP per capita, or whatever the case may be, you might reach the point where society as a whole is saying, you know what. I'm start. I'm ready to start buying that 30-hour work week. <laughs> right. Well, so that's so actually that's kind of the argument against this degrowth mm. is is that yeah, it's true that GDP growth in and of itself is not a good metric. In fact, when when economists first came up with GDP growth, one of the the guy who did it even said in public, you know, hey. This is a terrible metric for how happy the people are. Like, sure. He said, don't use it. It's terrible. Like it says this very specific thing about how many dollars worth of value are produced. That's it, right? It says nothing else. You know, don't obsess over this, this number. And so it, to me, I think a lot of people, either they really love their work. So I suspect that Jeff Bezos absolutely loves what he does for a living, right? I think he loves it. And I think he works more hours than you and I combined per week, right? And I'm not saying that to call you lazy. I'm not saying that to call me lazy. That's just how much Jeff Bezos loves what he does. And that's fantastic. If working, you know, 
80 hours a week is what makes you happy, great. That's amazing, right? If working 30 hours a week is what makes you happy and you can afford to do it, fantastic, right? So to me, the argument against the the degrowth literature is exactly as you said. You know, a lot of people do, once they kind of reach a, a certain income level, you know, if they get asked, you know, hey, can you pick up an overtime shift? No. Right. I'm going to go home and see my family. Right. You know, uh, I myself, I got asked to do something uh, for work last Saturday. Mm -hmm. Right. I said no. And it's not because I didn't care about what was going on. It was because I wanted to hang out with my wife and son. Right. And that's important to me. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah, I could have made a couple hundred bucks if I'd done it. But I don't know. I didn't want it. Exactly. I wanted to hang out with Wesley. <laughs> He's about to start walking, so it's kind of exciting. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about the the globalization and I think about what's happening domestically, I think the tension is is sort of split. You know, we're we're concerned about the the origins of the virus and and what it means for globalization, but then we're also concerned about how to find that balance from a uh, public policy standpoint, and you know, mm-hmm. you've done research and study in the area of public choice, and and of course, states vary mm-hmm. in, in the actions that they've taken. Uh, what are your observations as one who's studied the field of public choice about you know maybe the trade offs or the risks that we're encountering here, and from from a public policy standpoint? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing. Uh, so the economist Brian Kaplan has this great. Um, it's it's anecdotal, but I think it's pretty true. Uh, he calls it the the do something bias, and the idea is, you know, we identify a problem, okay, and clearly there must exist a solution to the problem, right? So we have to do something, you know. This is something, therefore we must do, you know, that thing, right? So, and very rarely do we really sit down and deliberate about, you know, what is going to happen, what are the second order or the unintended consequences of that that solution that we, you know, quickly arrive at. And this is kind of what I'm, I'm most concerned with. So, you know, we're in Michigan, uh, as several listeners probably are aware, uh, our governor has declared a state of emergency since I believe sometime in March. Um, and it's going all the way through September. So we're looking at five and a half, potentially even six months of a state of emergency. Mm. Now, a state of emergency is a very important thing. Okay. The normal legislative and political process is slow. It's designed to be slow. It's intended to be slow because it's intended to prevent bad things from coming out. Now, we can quibble about whether or not it's successful, right? But the intention there is to is to constrain a potentially overzealous person from using the powers of the state or federal government for their own purposes. That's the purpose of the checks and balances. It's the purpose of of delineating powers of limited government, right? It's to prevent bad people from doing bad, Mm. right? The converse would be to empower these governments to do as much as they possibly could because if you have a, a truly good, you know, benevolent person at the helm, then yeah, give them as much power as as they need to accomplish all the good, Mm. right? It turns out, or if we look at history, most of the time we don't run into these, you know, benevolent, omniscient despots, right? That's just not the person that ultimately seeks office. It's not the person that maintains office. As Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So we find that even the most principled of people who get into these positions end up kind of coming out 
a little bit more corrupted than they used to be. And not for nefarious reasons. You know, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, well, I'm going to have to make this trade on, on my morals because the alternative is that someone else is in my seat and I'm better than everyone else, right? Interesting. And so there's that. So what, what worries me is that we're moving so fast about something that we know very little about and we're using huge, very powerful tools very rapidly in a world where we have this incomplete and probably always will be incomplete information. So think about the state of emergency. Now, the state of emergency is designed to circumvent that slow process. So in times when, when things are changing quickly, when a decision needs to be made you know, now, the governor, the president, you know, they can declare states of emergency and they can circumvent the slow-moving process so that decisions can be made you know, quickly. Because after all, sometimes having a decision made is better than having like the perfect decision made, mm. right? And there are times when that's true. Um, what's interesting to me is I don't know if we're still in a time where things are changing so rapidly that we need to circumvent the normal political process. Like I don't know that. Right? right. But it seems to be the case that at least in Michigan, our governor believes so. You know, whether I agree with her or not, I have to live under it. And it's just a very it's a very dangerous thing because if you think about it, what we've effectively established now is that it's perfectly okay for a governor to declare a state of emergency on end. I mean, she has the unilateral authority to end it. Right. It's not like we can go and say, hey, you know, Governor Whitmer, knock, knock. You know, we've got a majority of your constituents and we want to end the state of emergency. Like that's not something we can do. Right. Right. There's only certain times where we can call a referendum to like have her, you know, removed from office. And that even takes like a supermajority. So there's not there's very little recourse that that we have to disagree and it's it's potentially dangerous because now we've established that that's a power that future governors have at their disposal. Mm. Now, okay, let's grant that what we're doing in Michigan is correct, that it's moral, that it's ethical, that it is constitutional. Let's just grant all of that. Now we know that this power exists. We did not know that in January. Now it exists. It's on the table. We'll never be able to remove it. Mm. Is there scope for a future governor to abuse that power? That's an interesting question. And to me, the answer is yes. Right. I think it's very clearly something that can be abused. Right. So what do we do from here? You know, even if it was correct in this crisis, is it correct for all future times? I don't know. So, I, I, of course, I don't know all the ins and outs of amending a constitution or something like that, but, but it does seem to me that we're going to have a number of lessons learned across the states, right, mm-hmm. about how governors responded to the situation. You know, one thing that just comes to mind immediately, and I don't remember who pointed this out, but it's not my idea, but, you know, when you start to shut down things by the criteria of whether or not the, the economic activity is necessary, mm-hmm. it begs all sorts of questions, right? Oh, yeah. The real pertinent question is not whether the activity is necessary. Necessary, but whether it's 
safe right. under the certain circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's ironic, I suppose, in some ways that that government governments that are designed to help protect us from these kinds of things, or at least respond effectively in a pandemic situation and emergencies didn't go through at least some rudimentary set of criteria under pa- a pandemic. What what kind of decisions would we make and how? Would it be right. on the basis of it being so-called necessary, whatever that means, uh-huh. or safe? Right. To me, that seems to be fundamental. Now, of course, like I say, it was, a, it was a neat idea that didn't come from me, so I probably wouldn't have thought of it until after the fact anyway. But. Right. No, I mean, that's, that's the other thing is, is when you go with necessary, you know, what is necessary? Right. That's a great question. It, every, to me, necessary is... Uh, being able to go into my office, right? Because my office is set up in a way that is best for me to be productive. And as it turns out, most people at, at Aquinas didn't go to the office at all. We were actually banned. But, you know, had I been on campus, I probably would have been safer too because mm-hmm. there was no one around me, right? So what's necessary? Well, to me, going to my office is necessary, right? Uh, going to the grocery store is necessary, but like what foods? You know, do I really need to go down the candy aisle in April? Probably not. But I was allowed to, right? So there's a lot of weird things. And and the other side of it is, you know, when when our governor said, you know, hey, these things are necessary, these things are not, she was the one that got to decide, right? There was no deliberative process with the constituents, with the legislature, right? She decided, you know, her and her cabinet, her advisors, you know, her campaign people, I'm sure weighed in on it as well. You know, it's it's a very strange thing where, you know, one person gets to say, this is necessary, this is not, unless you're doing it this way, then it's necessary, mm. right? I mean, think about, you know, I, I think there was a story of her husband trying to get his boat launched in, in northern Michigan, and there was a big backup, and he mistakenly, you know, made a joke, and I think it was very clearly a joke, um, but, you know, said, hey, you know, my wife is the governor. Does that put me at the front of the line, <laughs> right? And it, it clearly is not the correct thing to say, right? I mean, there's there's a peer, there's the optics of the situation, and then there's attempting to be funny, and I think he didn't really think through the optics all that well. Sure. But, you know, that's the thing that that— Governor Whitmer got to decide. I mean, remember at one point, you know, you could you could go on a powerboat if it had less than two people, or you could be on a kayak, right, if you were like 20 feet apart in the water or something, right? And it was like, and then all of a sudden we couldn't go on powerboats, but then we could. And it just, it was such a bizarre, constantly changing rules. I mean, and, and it all came from, from her. I mean, it was her decision to right. do it. Well, certainly investing a lot of power in a single individual. And, you know, of course, at the same time, we all recognize the incomplete information everybody's dealing with. And so I suppose in some sense, certain decisions are made out of risk aversion. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, whether or not that ultimately retrospectively was the right decision, uh, you know, is still to be determined, I suppose. But in the end, you're pointing out something really important is what kind of power do these individuals have? And then what are the implications for future crises? Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an opportunity, I think, for all of us to reflect not only on that, but also just on how privileged we are to have the kind of freedoms that we do have, because without the free market, uh-huh. things would not be going any better, right? No, than, not at all. So, you know, you pointed out at the very beginning, this the resiliency of markets as well as the resiliency of people and uh-huh. their innovative and ingenuity. So maybe, maybe with that, you could just uh, highlight a few things about that ingenuity and just entrepreneurial uh, capacity to respond in the marketplace during situ- situations. Just what do you think about the role of the entrepreneur? Um, to innovate in response to needs in the marketplace. Yeah. So the entrepreneur is is someone who is alert to opportunities 
and is in a position to kind of take advantage of or or meet those opportunities or those challenges, right? Because all in a free society, the only way that income is actually generated is by actually serving other people, right? I can't just go like thump you on the head and take your paycheck, right? I mean, I could, right? One, I couldn't because you're bigger than me. But two, I couldn't because that would be an unfree society. That would be theft, right? So in a free society, the only way for me to earn a paycheck is for me to provide a valuable service to someone at a price or a cost that they're willing to pay, right? And so the entrepreneur is someone who looks at the world and says, hey, there's an opportunity for me to serve other people, right? If I can just do things a little bit differently or a little bit better or innovate in some new way that previously we'd never seen before, then I can actually serve people and in turn, they will give me money. So the income is kind of the byproduct of the service, which is, to me, it's, that's where GDP actually gets it all wrong. The income is the primary thing, and the fact that other people are benefited is just merely incidental. In a free society, the serving other people comes first, and the income follows, right? Now, lots of, of groups in, in, on Facebook, on you know, other forms of social media, you know, cropped up right away when this all happened, you know, saying, hey, you know, there's a, a, an elderly person on my street who – you know, she's at high risk of, of contracting COVID and she needs groceries. You know, I'll go get it, right? And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That is serving someone and, you know, you could even do it for free. That's fantastic, right? The goal of any person is to serve other people. That's the dignified work, right? Some of that service returns money. That's the income. That's the secondary part. So the entrepreneurs who, who saw this as an opportunity to earn income by serving other people, you know, these are the people like, like um, Shipped uh, who saw, you know, hey, there might be some people who don't feel safe going to the grocery store. And yet they might not be close by to family. They might not have close friends. Or maybe their close friends are already burdened with, you know, providing daycare, providing IT services, teaching their kids how to read and write, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so maybe they said, you know, hey, I really, I need someone to go to the grocery store for me because I can't go myself. And so an entrepreneur came in and said, oh, hey, you know, for this small fee, I think it's like five bucks or something for the time the person goes to the store. For this small fee, I'll go get your groceries for you. Now, obviously, you have to pay for the groceries too, right? So you're paying for the groceries and the, the whatever the price is for the delivery. But think about that is, is it's a tremendous opportunity to serve other people in your community who otherwise would be unable to provide that service to themselves. Absolutely. And that to me is what the entrepreneur does. The entrepreneur is the person who finds new opportunities to serve other people. And again, the fact that they earn money for doing so is secondary to the equation. I, I can't agree with you more when I think about just in our own work workplace, how we've seen people be responsive to how our needs have changed as the Acton Institute, whether it be going from a physical conference to an online conference and what that all entails and making sure that it's successful. It really is quite a marvel that people do respond. And if you allow the space for individuals to exercise their entrepreneurial creativity, uh-huh. it can really solve many problems. So Absolutely. with that, why don't we wrap things up? And I just want to thank you again. It's a pleasure always uh, spending time with you, uh, Professor Hebert, and so great to hear your perspective on this. Uh, we all hope, of course, that uh, we 
we see continued progress in battling this pandemic and, and our thoughts and prayers go out to those uh, individuals who have experienced either sickness or death. And, and we certainly hope that the entrepreneur and are cheering the entrepreneur on to come up with vaccines that can help uh, make this all go away, as it were. So anyway, yeah. so thanks so much. We're delighted that you could join us here for Act Online and have a great day. Hey, thanks so much. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Cohn.